0: Hi everybody, I'm Fran Spielman and with me in the Sun-Times newsroom is someone who's had a great week, Amara Enya, thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: You had the endorsement of Chance the Rapper, how did that come about?
1: So interestingly, uh, Chance apparently had been a fan of mine for a long time. Uh, and I had been a fan of his from afar, though. So we found ourselves in a lot of similar spaces because of our organizing work and our work in the community. So, um, but we had never formally met. So he actually reached out to me. It was sort of out of the blue. And he said, you know, I think you're dope. I uh, definitely want to connect with you. want to talk about what's going on in the city. And I said, I'm a fan as well. And so we met, and we started talking, and it just clicked. So, and that, that was sort of how we finally formally met.
0: And it started with a text message, a phone call? How?
1: Yeah, yeah, it was a text message, I think, and then a phone call. And then we met fairly quickly after that and we just we clicked immediately. We have a lot of things in common in terms of really being committed to community and doing a lot of organizing work and trying to use our platforms to advocate for a lot of the issues that we care about. So we were so much aligned and we see the significance of this particular election cycle and what needs to happen for the city. So it's and it's been fun as well. It's been it's been great. Now what exactly is he going to do for you? So he is so typically with sort of celebrity endorsements, is sort of a flash in the pan one shot deal. We actually are going to be working together and essentially co-camping. for a lot of events around the city. Um, We've done, uh, we have many events planned where we're going to be talking about key issues around Chicago's economy, around education, a lot of the things that we've been active on. We also have a lot of grassroots events that we'll be doing out in the community, public speeches, just rallying people, getting people excited, and, of course, fundraisers as well, and tapping into all of our networks to really make this the kind of, to create a groundswell of excitement and enthusiasm about the campaign. So we're going to be working together and co-campaigning, essentially, until the end of the election cycle.
0: And has he provided you with ideas for programs, for things that he would
1: like done if you were to be elected? Yeah, so we've talked a lot about what does the first 10 days look like? What are the big ideas that we have that we can actually talk about to get people excited? All right, so
0: give me some ideas that he's given you.
1: So he has (laughs) talked about, so one of the things that he really cares about is expanding mental health services in Chicago. And so actually a couple of weeks ago, he donated a million dollars to that end. And so we've talked about how do you expand these services in communities, but also how do you make sure that in CPS, for example, kids have access to licensed social workers and nurses and so we're thinking about ways to shift investment to expanding those services in the community. He also talks about, we talk together about education equity, so this issue of student-based budgeting and what it means for schools that are actually experiencing population loss, which means they have less funding. And so um, we, our analysis of The student-based budgeting model and how do we infuse it with equity so that it's actually the schools that need those resources are able to get it. So we've talked about some creative ways of doing that. What are they? Like what, what creative ways? So it's actually revamping the formula with an equity model so it looks at schools not based upon the number of students that they get but what those schools actually need. Right now if a school has a lower population they get fewer dollars and right now we have a situation where schools are actually competing for a smaller and smaller number of students because CPS population has been declining over the last several years. So what that means is schools in the most challenged communities which are experiencing that population loss are actually having to slash their budgets and then if they're not getting access to CPS dollars, they're not getting as much access to CPS dollars. We have to have a, uh, a budgeting formula that actually says these schools in these challenged areas have a higher need for these sorts of positions. We have not done that in CPS, we've stuck with that model. So one of the things that we want to do is actually creating a new model through an equity lens.
0: An equity lens, so that would mean that you would rob from Peter
1: to pay Paul, really? Right? Not, not, not at all. It actually means that the, the well, the dollars have to come from someplace else, right? So they would come from CPS as a whole, but as one school district, we can't, we shouldn't even see our one school district as Peter and Paul. It's one district where we recognize that there are some areas and some schools that have really been uh, not getting the kinds of resources that they need to do justice for the students who go to those schools. So it is in everyone's collective interest to make sure that we have high quality neighborhood schools across the city. That means assessing how CPS allocates funds for its capital expenditures and also its programmatic expenditures. When we looked at, so I've been doing a lot of research in how CPS allocates programmatic expenditures, and we actually found a disparity, for example, in IB programs, where on the <laughs> west side of Chicago there is there are very few if at all, IB programs that are available for students, whereas we see a preponderance of those on the north side of Chicago. And so our responsibility is to say, how do we make sure that kids who live in this part of town also have access to those IB programs, or STEM programs, or other sorts of programs that everyone else has access to? That's the responsibility of the district, and it's only fair so that people don't have to feel that they are at a disadvantage just by virtue of where they live.
0: What would you do about the half-empty or, or even worse high schools and grade schools on the west side and the south side as population has declined.
1: Well and that is a testament to the fact that the city administration had not planned for the population decline so there was absolutely no planning done to anticipate what was happening in our communities we now have an opportunity in our view to actually reimagine what an educational experience could look like with some of those that infrastructure that is now empty Um, in many communities i've worked with many and in fact have worked personally on a project that reimagines closed schools as centers for learning as centers for where communities can actually put forth new innovative projects. One that we came up with was at an arts and culture campus where we're bringing in arts-based entrepreneurs, arts-based programs, and actually creating a campus that could be an economic driver in a community that had more than four schools closed. That kind of innovation is what's necessary, even as we're looking at schools that are emptying out around the city.
0: Well, you're talking about schools that are already closed, the 50 from, from a couple of years ago, the biggest in the history. I'm talking about the ones that are still half empty that need. To to be closed, what would you do about those?
1: We have to think about what is in the best interest of the students in those schools first. Making sure that they have access to high quality schools. One example is for example in Inglewood in where they closed, they decided to close all of the schools and had and no build plan. build one of, new precisely, one. Precisely. What then would you do, do about that? Well the new one, the, the problem with that plan was that they were going to bar existing students from the closed schools from even entering the new schools. Those students should have actually gotten top priority to be a part of that new school. That's one of the things.
0: And they modified it a little bit. Yes,
1: after a lot of pushback, and I was involved in a lot of. But I'm asking you,
0: what do you do about the schools that are half empty
1: or less? So it's about having a plan for those students to make sure that they get into, if we're moving students into other schools, they have to be moving into high quality schools. So we have to care about what happens with those students. When we closed schools last time, they did not plan for those students to get into better situations. And so the research actually showed that they did worse academically than had they stayed in those half empty schools. So we have to prioritize what's actually in the best interest of the student. Is closing that entire school in the best interest of the kids in that school? If so, how do we make sure that we're putting them in better situations than the ones that they're coming out of? And how do we think about using those buildings in innovative ways for the students while they're still there?
0: Now, uh, why should we care? what chance the rapper thinks. He's a great musician. He's <laughs> yes. won Grammys. He's been generous with his time and money. Yes. But why should the voters care what his, who his candidate is?
1: It's, it is important in a city where uh, the registered voters who actually came out to vote in the last election was only 30%. It is important because this is an election where we have to tap into people who have felt particularly uh, disenfranchised or ignored in the electoral process or can't be bothered to get involved because it doesn't resonate with them, because they don't see themselves in any of the politicians uh, that are before them. Chance is someone who brings substance, not just celebrity, and that was very important for me who because my track record is all about the substance, the things that I've done, so he's someone who who's invested his money uh, in Chicago, whether it's CPS and mental health resources. He started a foundation called Social Works, which actually works with youth in Chicago public schools, does leadership development. And he's a great musician and he has a great network. So for us, it's about, who can bring the excitement and the enthusiasm for people to actually get involved. We're not just focusing on the 30% of likely voters. We see a whole universe in that 70% that can finally see a message and a campaign and a platform that resonates with them. And he is helping us to do that uh, in spades.
0: Well, also, the city is at a perilous, perilous time. A billion dollars, a billion dollar spike in pension payments will hit you in the face if you're lucky enough to become mayor of Chicago, or maybe unfortunate enough. <laughs> what is your plan to yes. handle
1: that? So the pension, the the pension p- crisis, if you will, is part of a larger, for us, a larger economic plan that has to be part of the city's moving forward. That includes creating a growth economy that includes where we can generate revenue. A lot of people talk about paying for the pensions and it's just by virtue of what taxes we're going to increase. But for the city to be fiscally solvent, it has to address the issue of revenue and implement transformative policies that not only stabilize our finances, but bring in revenue from many different okay, areas. Okay, go ahead, tell us. Yes, yeah, so the hallmark of our economic platform is definitely we believe in protecting pensions, so we have to... Well, uh, you have that, to, that's uh, Exactly, law. it's constitutionally mandated and just more. And it's in state
0: law now. You've got to get them to
1: 90% funding in 40 years. Exactly. So the two areas where we see we can actually generate revenue for the city, one is something that I've talked about is addressing the waste that happens. So we're paying 1.7 billion dollars just in police misconduct settlements. That comes out of the city's operational costs. Okay.
0: Good luck with that. And that, but that's not an answer to this
1: immediate problem. It is. It, it's long-term a goal and certainly should be. Because it saves, if we're paying $1.7 billion just in police misconduct segments, that's $1.7 billion that we don't have it's to It's not pay a year.
0: That's not it's, a year. It's over a period of time. It's
1: over a period of time, sure. but but over the next few years, this is still our tax dollars that are going I into I understand, that. but so uh, the what are is, your
0: immediate ideas for this spike that's going to hit you? You can't have a long-term plan like that you've got to have an immediate. Well
1: the problem has been that we haven't had a long-term plan for revenue for the city ever and that plan now has been borrowing which is not uh, effective for future generations and it has been raising taxes which has become unsustainable it's actually contributing to population loss and so for us it's about shoring up the population. One of the things that we talk about economically is having a is actually shifting to a public bank for the city of Chicago.
0: How would that work?
1: So public bank is a bank whose only allegiance is to the taxpayers. Its only responsibility is to make sure that the city's economy is strong. You can use that bank actually to fund our infrastructure projects at very low interest. Right now we pay 40 to 50% higher on interest to private banks. That's money that is wasted. That's money that actually can be recirculated into our economy. It can also issue low interest loans for small business owners. If we're going to generate revenue, we have to create a stronger environment for our business owners because they pay taxes And they pay fees and they pay fines to the city. It is extremely transformative and it. It prevents us from paying the hundreds of millions that we currently pay to private banks on bad bank deals, on uh, renegotiating those bad bank deals. That is costing the city money. So a public bank is actually foundational to moving the city's economy into the direction it needs to go. In, and it's also a mechanism for generating revenue.
0: Where does the money come from for that? So it's
1: capitalized by existing uh, assets that we currently hold in private banks. So you don't have to have a huge infusion of new money. It's a matter of shifting the, those funds into the public bank, where the allegiance is actually to the public and not to uh, prop, uh, uh, shareholders for private banks.
0: Well, wait, the assets come from the city's assets or the city's tax revenue goes into the bank?
1: Yes, yeah, so the city right now currently holds its, its funds in private banks. So Right, like the treasurer's of office does. So you can actually shift those, the funds that are currently held in private banks, you can actually shift them into a public bank for the city. So you don't have to come up with new (coughs) new capital to capitalize the bank. That's why it's not not as heavy a lift as people think. This actually exists elsewhere in the country. So North Dakota has a public bank. It's the strongest, highest performing bank in the country. Other cities like New York, Los Angeles, and almost 15 other cities have moved in that direction. The governor-elect, the new governor of New Jersey has made that the hallmark of his platform. I work on this issue nationally. So those who are looking for innovative ideas that actually address the economic circumstances in cities, are they're already moving in this direction, and we believe that Chicago should be leading on this because it affects everything from our ability to have a strong business climate, our ability to generate additional revenue, our ability to create stability in the housing market, which we really suffered from years ago. These are the kinds of ideas that we have to implement, but it takes the kind of vision to put them on the table.
0: What kind of revenues would you raise when you have to raise taxes, which you will have to do? Which revenues would
1: you choose? I think it's about not just, so we have to look at who these increases are affecting. There are better ways of raising revenue that do not fall disproportionately on those who can least afford to pay Go ahead. so for example we talk about at the state level having a progressive income tax versus a flat tax it's a much more fair way of generating revenue when you think about things like tickets very difficult fees, to
0: achieve you have to go to a constitutional amendment what is right. your immediate local solution that you as mayor could do
1: so it is about the process when you think about increasing your fines, fees, and tickets. The research has shown that those taxes are, that those, uh, we call them forfeitures, they are actually hitting lower income people and communities. We actually have to look at that. So instead of just raising property taxes across the board or raising the cost of a ticket across the board, which the city has done, we have to look at how do we make sure that these increases are not Hurting those who can least afford to pay. Okay, that so analysis is very important.
0: What are your revenue ideas that wouldn't hit the little guy?
1: It's about looking at how they're implemented. So instead of saying we're going to uh, raise uh, property taxes across the board for everyone, it's to say how can we make this so that those who can least afford to pay are paying a certain percentage that's commensurate with their income. So again, it's not just about saying this is what we're going to raise this tax and that tax. It's about saying, How do we do this in a thoughtful and fair way that acknowledges that people are at very different ends of the spectrum economically and that for so many years, all of the taxes, fines, fees, and and tickets have hit those who can least afford to pay? And because of that, we're actually losing our population, which is the best form of revenue that we could have. It's our property tax revenue. What about a city income tax? Would that be
0: a better way?
1: So that's one that's an option but again even with that it would have to mirror when we talk about the progressive income tax it would have to mirror that style it has to be progressive it cannot be a flat tax that applies across the board
0: But a progressive city income tax would be a way to do that then
1: Yeah that's an option yes but again Why is the, that a better way Well the because a progressive tax is not applied evenly across the board so if i make $30,000 I'm paying a percentage that's commensurate with my 30000 If I make $3 million, then I can pay commensurate with that $3 million. So it's just a much more fair way of generating revenue from people.
0: Now you've talked about cutting the police
1: budget. No, not, not, well, so the police budget is about a third of the city's overall budget. What I've talked about is how you address violence as a whole. We have to separate violence from policing and far too often we conflate the two. Reducing violence is about investments in all of our public policy failings across the board as a city. That means investments in housing, investments in education, investments in an economy that is inclusive, Investments in public health hazards that actually create biological um, manifestations of violence. We don't talk about those things. Whenever we talk about violence, for example, we talk about policing, and that results in investments in police infrastructure. What we're saying is that there has to be a balance. We actually have to invest in all the other things that create the circumstances of violence. Of course, but would you you
0: cancel, for example, the 1,000 police officers that Mayor Emanuel is getting done hiring
1: here? the the ones that he has added. So that's already in process. Our values are to say that the police officers that we have, that's, that's already in process. It's not about canceling it. It's to say that we don't believe that the answer to addressing violence is simply investing in more police. We have to actually take an approach that invests in all of the other public policy areas that we have not done a good job on. That actually reduces violence and quite frankly, it makes the job of police officers easier because we're not expecting them to be the counselors, to be the babysitters, to be, all of these other things we have to make sure that we're building strong people and strong communities and we can't do that if we're not investing in people and all of our investments are going into police infrastructure what would you do about community policing we have to so one of the biggest things that i talk about is investing in block club infrastructure so that people in their neighborhoods can be can have more autonomy in monitoring and policing themselves and their blocks over time the city has cut the budget for block clubs, but yet we talk about communities that are over-policed. There are a lot of people on their blocks who would be fine with keep being the eyes and ears on their blocks, and the city can actually invest in building stronger block club infrastructure.
0: Instead of investing in community policing.
1: Well, it, it is, it's a better version of community policing because we don't have to rely on just the police officers to be in the community. It is empowering people who live on their blocks to build their own relationships, monitor their own blocks, because the the residents on the block are actually the best resource that police officers have to do their work. They're the ones that they have to interview when something happens, that they have to get information from. And so when you have strong block clubs, you can build a much more beneficial relationship with the police district in that area, because now there's information sharing going on, and there's monitoring happening where it doesn't require police to be heavily have a heavy presence in a particular area, because that can lead to issues as well. We talk about building the trust between communities and police. But if we're not investing in building strong communities that can monitor themselves and have some level of control over what's happening in their communities, it's going to continue to be in balance and you'll see that there's a rift in that relationship.
0: What about the police contract? What would you do? How would
1: you change it? So there has been, there are so many aspects of the police contract that are, that we have a public interest in making sure. we're strongly advocating so one of the things for me that's important is um, access to the records of police officers so for example we just had the the verdict in the jason van dyke case and one of the things that came up was the fact that this wasn't a first-time offense this is there are if you have access to the data you can see if there is a pattern of behavior from certain officers if we don't have access to that information then we cannot prevent situations from like what happened with laquan mcdonald from happening however the police contract is designed to protect even that kind of data that i believe is in the public interest we have to have a champion that recognizes it's not just about protecting the police which that's what the union's job is supposed to be but how do we make sure that the public is also protected so how would you change it by advocating the data like that like what the records of officers that it is not Private that it actually has to be public. We have to prioritize transparency. We have to create a culture where um, officers that are engaged in egregious behavior, such as lying on reports, that they are that they are those situations are handled unequivocally. That is how you build legitimacy for the institution of policing. If we can't do that, if if there is resistance to even the mildest reforms, then all that that says to the public is they're not interested in being accountable to anyone or anything. Our, for me, a, a mayor's job is to actually push for the interests of the public, the interests of the residents, the interests of tax do- taxpayers. Because when we don't do that, the $1.7 billion that we're, we're going to be on the hook for, That's the residents of Chicago paying. So we have a vested, not just a moral interest, but a financial interest in making sure that that contract is reflective of the values that we talk about.
0: Before we go, on a lighter note, you came here from working out. What's your routine? (laughs) You're a marathon runner. Tell us about it. What time do you get up? What do you do?
1: (laughs) So I'm up these days, 4 a.m., usually 4.30, but these days, because it's campaign season, 4 a.m., I start every morning with a run, about seven, eight miles, and then I do. Uh, when when it's warm outside, I ride outside. So I ride out to really, actually, to the suburbs uh, from my house on the west side. You get on and a back, bike after the seven bike. mile ride? Yeah. A uh, walk, run rather? Yeah, yeah. And then, and then, then I ride. Out miles for that? Uh, it depends. On weekends, I started doing anywhere between 80 to 100 miles in a ride. But if it's a weekday and I have, I have to work, obviously, I might do 30 or 40. So wait a minute. Seven
0: miles running and then you get on the bike for? Yeah. Every day.
1: Well, the bike, I would say, so the long rides is just one day a week. If I ride during the week, it might be one or two days. Wow. Yeah. You're putting me to shame. <laughs> Amara and you thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me.